Amen. Exodus chapter 15. Why don't you guys stand with me for a second? Stand with me. I'm going to read through the first 18 verses here through this, this song, okay? So you can follow along in your Bible. It says this, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and the host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, and it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now... Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the, per- the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. We come to Exodus chapter 15 this morning, and we find uh, the Israelites standing on the eastern shore of the Red Sea. They don't know it yet, but not only are they standing on the eastern shore of the Red Sea, but they're standing on the verge of 40 years, uh, wandering in the wilderness. They are the ransomed, uh, redeemed, uh, blood-bought children of God, purchased with the blood of a lamb. God has led them to this place. There is the visible sign of God's presence uh, with them. His presence is with them in, in this sign of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. As we kind of just get our heads a little bit around the context again of what's been happening in this story, we, we have to realize that the children of Israel have just experienced the most dramatic and significant miracle in the history of their people. Uh, of course, the Passover happened in Egypt and Pharaoh, after the death of his firstborn, had driven the people out of the land of Goshen, out of the land of, of Egypt. 
And after some quick lessons, as we saw in Exodus chapter 13 and a little bit into chapter 14, you know, the Lord teaching the people, this world is not your home. The firstborn belongs to me. I want you to uh, practice annually to remember that which I've done for you. Uh, God led them to the, to the city, Etam, on the edge of the wilderness. And there he said to them, uh, I am with you. As they looked to head into the wilderness, they were reminded that the presence of God was going with them as they went into the wilderness. And then they traveled to the edge of the Red Sea and hemmed in between the mountains and the gorges and the sea and the armies of Pharaoh, the Lord worked another miracle. He, whoo, that's big tears. The Lord worked another miracle. Moses raised his staff over the Red Sea and the Lord parted the sea. Uh, the sea floor congealed, we read in this song. It hardened. It became like a desert highway for them uh, to travel on. The waters parted, a, a wall to their right and to their left. And the people of Israel crossed on dry ground through the Red Sea. And we know Pharaoh's armies followed them into the midst of the sea. But between the children of Israel and the armies of Pharaoh was that visible, tangible sign of the presence of the Lord, the angel of the Lord there with them. Uh, to one, the children of Israel, there was light on their side. To the, children, to the armies of Pharaoh on that side, they, they traveled in darkness and when all the children of Israel had crossed over, Moses again raised his staff over the Red Sea and the waters returned to their place. So a great picture in your mind. The armies of Pharaoh uh, were drowned. Now, I, I don't know, I, I read this and I think, well, I'm a guy, so I think we like these kind of violent stories. Um, but sometimes it's hard to imagine for us that this is the victory of God, right? As the children of Israel are standing on, on the shore and they begin to, to sing and you, you kind of wonder, wow, are, are the people of God to rejoice over the death of the unrighteous? And, you know, I guess lots of people come to the word of God and, and you hear this argument lots of times. They say, you know, I, I read the Bible. It's really violent. I don't know how to deal with that. And so I, I just can't believe in a God who acts in these ways and responds to people in these ways. And they kind of express uh, their frustration. But as we consider this story and we zoom out and we take the big picture of what's been going on, uh, we, we realize that the Egyptians were not innocent children of God's wrath, were they? Uh, as a nation, they had spurned the blessing of God that was on the children of Israel. They hated them. You know, God led Joseph and led the children of Israel to the land of Egypt. Joseph had served as, as a deliverer, not, not just for Israel, but also for Egypt. That God had given him great wisdom so that in the midst of famine and drought, uh, there would be provisions so that the people would survive. And so the presence of Israel had been a blessing to Egypt that saved them once already from death. And the Lord used Joseph when I guess much, many of the lives of the ancient world were threatened. But rather than responding in faith to God, Egypt saw the blessing of God upon the children of Israel and they sought to oppress them. They enslaved them. They made life bitter. When God sent his prophet and his judgments upon the gods of the Egyptians, um, from Pharaoh down, they resisted the mercy of God. 
In fact, Revelation tells us, the book of Revelation tells us that, this, that the world, the condition on the world will be very similar in the days of the great tribulation. In the last days, God will send warnings and he will send judgments and they will come upon the earth and they will be very similar in their pattern to what we saw happen uh, with the Egyptians. And the Bible tells us that those who dwell on the earth in those days too will harden their hearts against the, the work of God. They'll shake their fist at the, the sky, just like the Egyptians did who oppressed the children of Israel. And it didn't matter whether God touched their water or whether he touched the fishing industry or their agriculture, their, their crops from the ground or their orchards or whether, uh, you know, he touched their livestock or their economy or even their firstborn in the Passover. At, in, in each one of those instances, they were stubborn in their rebellion and their obstinate attitude, hard attitude towards God. And they pursued, even after the death of the firstborn, the children of Israel, after they had gone out, they pursued them to destroy them. So not innocent. Know that. Not innocent. Now for Israel, you know, this miracle of the Red Sea really had nothing to do with them. I mean, we read the story and we recognize that this is about the character of God. This is about the faithfulness of God. This is about the mercy of God. This is about the promises of God. This is about um, God's faithfulness to his word. Because on the west side of the sea, Israel went into a total, the nation of Israel went into a total panic. And rather than reaching out in faith to the God who had saved them in the midst of the Passover, they complained. They murmured. Uh, they grumbled and they, they set that murmuring and that grumbling and that complaining against Moses. But ultimately, we recognize as we read this story, ultimately, ultimately, uh, their complaints were against God, not against Moses. And, you know, we would, we would do well. We're going to see this as we go through this chapter. We would do well to recognize this about our own complaints as well. You know, if we're truly led by God, if we've come to faith in Jesus Christ and the spirit of God lives in us and God is leading our lives as we believe as followers of Jesus Christ, uh, we have to recognize that whatever circumstance, whatever situation we found ourselves in, uh, to complain in the midst of that ultimately is to complain against God. You know, uh, so as we consider this story, it was never the faith of Israel that led to the victory of the Red Sea. There was only one man with faith in the story. It was Moses. And, and by the faith of that one man, the multitude was saved through the miracle of God. It's amazing to consider. Probably three million people saved by the faith of Moses in the midst of that dead-end situation. Now the same is true for us. By the work of one righteous man, because of his faithfulness to his father, that one righteous man, Jesus, gave his life for us, the unrighteous. And the Bible tells us Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but he was made alive by the spirit. And the scripture tells us that there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved except by the name of Jesus. And that all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. And at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee shall bow in, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now for that reason, the song of Moses that we're about to dive into just a little bit here is not just the song of Moses. You have to see that as we get into this. It's the song of all of those who were saved in that Red Sea miracle. But it's more than that. It's my song. It's your song. It's the song of the victory of God for the people who have been saved uh, by God. The enemy has been defeated. Jehovah is victorious. Israel sang this song on the shore of the Red Sea. But the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 15 That you and I are going to sing this exact same song in heaven by the crystal sea. We'll sing it to Jesus. Isaiah chapter 12 tells us that during the millennial kingdom on earth, when Jesus physically rules and reigns from Jerusalem, uh, this will be the song of the redeemed. This very same song. You you can find it throughout uh, the scripture. It's the first song recorded in the Bible. It's the last song recorded in the Bible. Because it's the song of the people of God who sing about the victory of God with great joy and with great thanksgiving. And so let's go through it again, just a little slower. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. Now, if you have a, if you have a, a pen on you, there's a word you need to circle in this first one. It's the word salvation in verse two. And he has become my salvation. The word salvation in Hebrew is a word that you're very familiar with. Yehoshua. Yeshua. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my Yeshua. He has become my Jesus. Right there in the start of that song, we see uh, Jesus Christ. You remember that the, that the angel Gabriel went to the man named Joseph, pledged to be married to that virgin Mary who had been found to be with child. And Joseph had it in his mind. He was going to divorce her quietly But the angel came to him in the night and said to him, she will give birth to a son and you are to name him Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. Same name right here in this song. It starts Jesus tucked in there uh, right from the start. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. In the King James, it says this, he is my God and I will prepare for him a habitation. My father's God, I will exalt him. You know, the Psalms tell us that, that the Lord dwells in the praises of his people. You know, when you sing, when we sang this morning, as we sang to, to Jesus from our hearts, we built for him a habitation, a dwelling, a temple for his presence uh, to manifest itself. You know, Jesus uh, said that, God is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And so, you know, I would say this, you know, the, yeah, the Lord is seeking 
It's an interesting thought to think, well, we seek the Lord in worship. The Bible, in a way, paints the picture the other way. It says the Lord is seeking worshipers. And that when we worship, our hearts become a habitation, a dwelling place for the spirit and for the presence of God. And so, you know, when you have times where you're going through a sense where, you know, God's presence is missing or it's distant or whatever it might be. And you just don't sense that intimacy and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The best thing you can do is this, is to begin to worship Jesus in song. To begin to make music to him, to have, to sing to the Lord, you know, and, and make melody in your heart because God is seeking that. And when I worship him, uh, he seeks me and he blesses me with his presence and I become his habitation, his dwelling place, his home, a temple for the spirit of God. And so Moses sang, I, and the people sang, I will prepare for him a habitation. Verse three, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. I, I, I did that verse kind of, I just find that so interesting to say it calls God a man, but also that uh, he's a man of war. You know, The children of Israel needed to know this and you and I need to know this, that God is a man of war because too often the, the deck is stacked against us. Life is stacked against us. And so it's important that we understand that God is a warrior, that God is a man of war, that God is one who will lead you into battle who will fight for you in the midst of battle. God is the one who will, as a warrior, who will ensure the survival of his people. Uh, God, as, as they're getting ready to go into the desert, the, the reality is here is God's going to define the battles. God's going to say, we're going to go into this battle and I'm going to lead you and I'm going to do this and I'm going to decide where and when we go to war. And the people of God, we're, we're not called to have allies. You know, we're not called to make allies with this world or make allies with our money or whatever it is. Um, Our dependency is not to be on foreign powers, but on Jesus Christ, on our deliverer, not any earthly deliverer, but the true King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus. He's a man of war. I said, wow, it's kind of interesting to think about because John said what? God is love. God is love. Moses said, God's a man of war. It's not a contradiction. God is love, but all around us, there is a war happening. A a spiritual reality. There are forces and angels and demons and things happening. And they don't have anything, you know, the, the evil side of things don't have anything to do with love. God is love, but God is a man of war and he wages, you know, war on such forces, just like he waged war on Pharaoh. You know, you read the Bible, like I mentioned earlier, there's like violence in like every book in the Old Testament. I love it. I'm sorry, but I do. I'm not going to apologize for it. I love those stories. My boys love those stories. And, you know, they... That, that violence that you find in the 
Old Testament is a, is a physical picture of spiritual realities. We live in the midst of that violence. We, we, we can't have a blind eye here, people. Jesus said, from the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. We're called to be violent as well. It's just kind of interesting, but not physically. We're called to be violent spiritually. We do battle in the place of prayer. You know, James said that the prayer of a righteous man is fervent and it is effective. That is fervent and it is effective. It works power as that man prays. When, when you pray, you know, I would say this. Pray prayers that, are ex- that express a powerful king and a powerful kingdom who rules who reigns, who is advancing his kingdom by force. You know, too often our prayers are like too nice, man. Christians, it's so nice. It's just, we're so nice. God, we just want to have a nice day. You know? God, we want to be nice people. God, keep us safe. Pray violent prayers. God, I don't know what you want me to do today, but I'm here, man. Send me into the enemy's strongholds. Make me a man of war like you are. God, may I be the voice that proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. See, sometimes as Christians, we're so nice, it's annoying, isn't it? It really is. Be violent for the kingdom of God in the place of prayer because God is a man of war. And all the men should say, amen. Men, I know that you get this. Guys get this, okay? And, you know, I would say to you this, men, you need to go to war on behalf of your family, for your wife and for the faith of your children. I'm reminded of the example of Job in scripture. Uh, Job was a righteous man and Job was so concerned about the spiritual well-being of his children that we read about him that he got up early in the morning and he offered sacrifices and offerings and prayers to the Lord on behalf of his children just in case they had sinned against God or just in case they had cursed God. And the Bible tells us that that was Job's continual practice. James said the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing and violent men take hold of it. God is loving, but be violent in the place of prayer. Verse four, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them and they went down into the depths like a stone. Man, there it is. They went down into the sea. This is in a swamp. This is the Red Sea. Verse six, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. I just love that. The depths congealed before the Lord and became like a highway. Verse 9. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. 
I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. You know, as I read that, I hear the voice of Satan. Don't you hear it? That, that is the voice of our enemy right there. That is the expression of his heart towards us to pursue, to overtake. You don't think he's violent? To divide, the, to have his, his way, his fill, to pull out his sword? Verse 10. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. There's a great picture. The earth swallowed. What a, what, it's powerful. Verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Your holy abode. That's, that's prophetic. We're going to see that twice here. That God is leading them to a place where he is going to dwell. Speaking of the mountain of God, Zion, the great city of the great king, Jerusalem. Verse 14. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of, inhabitants of Philistia. Amazingly, a couple weeks back when we were in Exodus chapter 13, we read that when the children of Israel were led out of Egypt, that God was functioning with a plan. He didn't take them via the quick route on the Via Maris, the way of the sea to the land of Canaan. Because he said, if I take them that way, they will meet the Philistines and I don't want my children to be disheartened. I want them to be encouraged. I want them to enter into that land in victory. So I'm going to take them another route. It's a longer route, but I'm going to teach them lessons along the way. And so to me, it's interesting that the Philistines were on, were on the border of that land between the land of Egypt and, and the land of Israel. And now we already see the plan of God as Moses and the people began to, to, to sing. God is instilling fear in the people who Israel would do battle with. The Philistines, fear, pangs have seized them. They, they tremble. And it's just interesting that Philistia is mentioned first. Verse 15. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Prophetically speaking of the sanctuary of God, the tabernacle of God, uh, the temple that was to be built on one of the seven mountains that surround the city of, of Jerusalem. We know it's Mount Moriah. It's the place where uh, the Lord provided a ram for Abraham and prevented the sacrifice of Isaac as Genesis chapter 22 records. And Abraham said this, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Jehovah Jireh, God, my provider. The Lord will provide. Abraham said this, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. 
In other words, God will offer himself as a sacrifice. Abraham spoke thousands of years beforehand, prophesying that God would offer himself as a sacrifice. And on Mount Moriah, where the temple was built, Jesus there was crucified. Stone's throw. It's the same mountain at the place of the skull. The city of the great king, Zion, the place the Lord chose for his sanctuary, the place the Lord chose for his abode. Verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Now, I mean, just, just in your mind's eye, picture these 600,000 men plus women uh, plus children. We're pushing 3 million here. And they've, they've, you know, on the eastern side of that sea and they are rejoicing in the victory of God. Isn't that a worship concert a service that you would have liked to have been a part of? Wouldn't that have been awesome? Now, verse, uh, you know, yeah, I, I can only imagine just the worship that rose to heaven as those children of Israel sang. Now, verse 19 says, When the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Imagine a couple things, just kind of for fun. A wall of water to your right and to your left. I don't know. It's like walking through an aquarium, man. Where the sharks swimming along or the pods of dolphins and the crabs scurrying or whatever it looked like. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thought to think they walked through the midst of the sea like they were in an aquarium. And then the waters came back and there they are. They're on the eastern shore and there's bodies of, of Egyptians floating, reminding them of the victory of God. They're going to travel down this eastern shore. And, and, and I imagine there is all along, you know, signs, maybe bodies, maybe equipment of the Egyptian army that was coming up on the seashore. Now, verse 20 says, then, the, then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam, Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Miriam is the first prophetess mentioned in the scripture. Now, we haven't heard anything about her basically for 80 years in this story. We were introduced to Miriam early in the book of Exodus because she is the older sister of Aaron and, and Moses. She's in her 90s here. What a, what a thought. She's a 90-year-old worship leader, a, a prophetess dancing with her tambourine uh, before the Lord. And we haven't, we haven't seen this woman since she was, you know, on the shores of the Nile watching out for her little brother Moses while he was floating in the river in a basket. It, it was her who went uh, uh, to Pharaoh's daughter and, and said, let me go find a Hebrew woman. To nurse her. Now was Miriam, just in your mind's eye, as Miriam took her tambourine and went out dancing and worshiping the Lord, it says, all, all the women followed her. And they went and they, she sang to them and they began to sing. sing. And, it, and it must have been quite a sight. You know, we're talking like 400, 500 600,000 women coming out of the camp with tambourines and dancing and worshiping the Lord. Pray, praising God. What a great picture, eh? The, the whole scene is just one worship service I want to be a part of one day. Verse 22. 
Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went to the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and they found no water. Now there's a parallel in the New Testament to what we're seeing here. We see they they come through the Red Sea. This is a, a baptism and they travel into the wilderness. Jesus, when he was baptized by John, scripture says that he went under the water When he came up out of the water, the spirit of God descended upon him in the form of a dove and full of the Holy Spirit. He was immediately driven where by the spirit of God into the wilderness, into the desert. Jesus spent 40 days there. Israel's going to spend 40 years there. Jesus spent uh, 40 days there. We know to be tempted by the devil. He would go without food. He would go without water. Now we're going to, we're going to see why in a minute here. The pattern was the same for Israel, I guess, so to speak. Come out of the Red Sea. It's it's a baptism, the victory of God, the visible sign of God's presence, just like on Jesus, the dove came. They've got the cloud. The visible sign of God's presence is there. And they are led into the wilderness. For 40 years, it's going to take. And though it says Moses made Israel set out for the Red Sea, we realize this, that ultimately God is leading. The pillar starts to go. Moses says, Follow that cloud or we're going to fry out here under the sun. So uh, off they go following the presence of God. And uh, just like Jesus following, follow, led by the spirit into the desert. Israel is led into the desert, the wilderness of Shur. Shur means wall. They're going to hit a wall, so to speak. They went three days into the wilderness and they found no water. The first day, you know, no water. Think about it. Some 3 million people, men, women, children, livestock, um, whatever they were carrying, it's not cold and refreshing anymore. You know, wineskins full of water, whatever sacks they had. It's like nice hot water to drink in the midst of the desert. Uh, They were being baked in the sun. You know, I'm sure that after day one, not having fresh water, there was distress in the midst of the camp. Day two, the level of distress began to rise. You know, monotony of desert travel, I think quickly set in. It's sand and it's rock and it's treeless and it's lifeless and it's waterless. And the horizon's nothing but the same as far as you look in any direction. And I imagine exhaustion began to set in quickly and whatever water supplies were left, they're even lower in day two. Day three, Moses knows the desert. You know, think about that. He's traveled this desert before. And so we can imagine that he encouraged the people. I've been here before. It's not much further. I'm sure it's just, it's just a little ways ahead. We don't have to go too far and we're going to find water. Persevere. Don't give up. Uh, Let's keep going. I'm sure that the parents were getting nervous about their young. I mean, imagine having infants in your day three now. No, no water. They're nervous about their young kids. I'm sure that there were elderly in their midst that were in in grave danger. Death was breathing down upon them to be in a desert for three days with no water. Now, when you think of Egypt, as we looked at Egypt, we saw Egypt was a land that was rich in water. The Nile River and the cisterns of Egypt, um, but all of that is now long in the rear view mirror. It's behind them. And it's just interesting to think, you know, that after we come to faith in Jesus Christ, 
And the Spirit leads us into the wilderness because we all have wilderness times. And there we thirst. And when we're thirsty in life, we go looking for water. But the thing is this. When you've been purchased and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the places where you used to go and have your thirst quenched no longer satisfy you. You know that if you've been following Jesus. You, know, you used to hang out here with these people. You used to drink this. You used to smoke that. You used to do this. You used to do this. And then Jesus comes into your life. And all of a sudden, those things that used to quench my thirst don't quench my thirst anymore. What the heck? And, and maybe when we're new and following Jesus Christ, or even when we've been following Jesus Christ for a long time, we go back at times and go, well, may, maybe I'll try that. And then we go, man, that wasn't, boy, that, I used to, <laughs> that didn't quench my thirst. I, I'm thirsty. See, the cisterns of this world and the place where we once used to find refreshment can't refresh us anymore because we need to be going to Jesus Christ for living water in our thirst. When you know Jesus, the cisterns of this world hold very uh, a little appeal just because they don't quench thirst anymore. You know, maybe you go back to that place, you think, man, I, I used to find so much comfort here. I would drink and I liked it, you know, but it doesn't satisfy me. I'm still thirsty. I'm not quenched. Jesus said this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of him will flow rivers of living water. And so for the Israelites, Egypt's rearview mirror, man, that's, that's old life. They're not going back to those wells for water anymore. It's not even an option any longer. They need to go to the Lord. They need the Lord to provide. And so as they traveled through the desert, longing for water, you imagine the rumble that came through the camp as there was rumor of an oasis in front of them. A, a water source. I, I just imagine just that hope, their strength, strength revived. You know, the fatigue and the thirst were forgotten for long enough to step up the pace and to head to that water source. But we're going to see here, it was a great disappointment when they got there. Check it out, verse 23. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled. This is the pattern of the people of Israel. The people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Now, Marah means bitter, right? As the text tells us, I can't help but think of the story of Ruth. Remember that story of Ruth, her mother-in-law, Naomi, because there was famine in the land of Egypt, her family, they packed up and they went to the land of Moab and there her husband died and her two sons died. And when Naomi made the decision to come back to the land of Israel with one daughter-in-law and three dead males buried back in the land of Moab, and she got there, she said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because life has been bitter for me. It's been bitter for me. And you imagine for the children of Israel, what a disappointment when the first gulp of, of water was bitter to the taste and bitter to the stomach. Death's breathing down on them. They followed the cloud of the presence. That's the thing here though. That's the thing. 
God has led them to this place. And, and that is what we, we need to see so clearly. God has led them to this place. Yeah, but it's not what we thought it was going to be. Yeah, but God led them to this place. And the same thing happens for us. You know, we come to Mara in life. We come to some situation, some relationship, some town. Maybe it's Gibson's. To an occupation. Maybe we come to a ministry and we thought, wow, this is, this, whatever this is, it's going to be cool and it's going to be refreshing because God's led me here. Instead, we find it bitter. Instead, it's, it's not what we thought it was going to be. Now, this is the fourth stop for the children of Israel. Remember, I said each of the camps is significant. This is Mara, the bitter place. And the question is, why did God lead his children into the bitter place? And it's an important question because you and I end up in bitter places, don't we? We all know the reality of what, it might not be physical thirst, but spiritual thirst to, to end up somewhere bitter or to end, maybe it is, you know, a, a bitter life experience that is physical. And so let me suggest some reasons why God led his children there. What if life was only sweet? And what if life was never bitter? You know, I think about that. I think, well, then I'd have no desire for God. I'd have no desire for the kingdom of God. I'd have no longing for the hope of heaven. I'd quickly forget that I live in a tent and that I'm just passing through. That I'm a sojourner. That this world is not my home. And so, Bitter experiences for us Christians, people of faith, those who have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb are important. They're important that God leads us to bitter places because we need to be reminded, this world is not my home. I've put my hope in heaven. There's bitterness here, but one day I'll be in the place where there's no tear and there's no sickness and there's no disease. That's where my hope is. I'd say the second thing the Lord wanted to teach them was this, that bitter experience, bitter experience in life provide a diagnostic of your heart. This is really important. A bitter experience is kind of like getting an x-ray or an ultrasound of your heart. You know, those things, an ultrasound or or, or an x-ray or whatever the diagnostic tool might be, those things allow you to see the condition of your own heart. And again, the children of Moses, the children of Israel, what's the condition of their heart? They began to grumble against Moses and they said, what shall we drink? But in reality, just like on the other side of the Red Sea, they're not grumbling against Moses. They're grumbling against God because God has led them to that place. And the same is true for us. Look, the reality is, is I will never know the condition of my heart until I come to something that isn't what I expected it to be. And God designs those things simply to show us what's in our hearts. You know, it's not that God doesn't know what's in my heart. Look, I don't know what's in my heart. I don't know what's in there. Say, oh, I'm I'm so good, Lord. You know, it's... They have a good heart. God says, man, you don't know the heart. The heart is wicked and the heart is deceitful. And unless I cure it, 
There's no future and no hope for your heart. You need to know what's in your heart. So I'm going to bring you to a, a bitter place. A place where it's going to be not what you expected. I think about bitter things. Do you know that people do not make you bitter? Situations don't make us bitter. They simply show us what's already inside our own hearts. That's why, you know, two people could go into a bitter experience and express two very different emotions. One can complain and one can grumble. And another one can say, God, I'm looking to you to work in the midst of this. I don't know what you're teaching, but I, I want to learn it. You know, one can be negative and blaming and the other one can look with faith uh, to the work of God. I, I, I think of Jesus and I think how bitter was the cross led there by God, nailed, spat upon, cursed by the lips of men. And what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. That reveals something about the heart of Jesus. What does it reveal? No bitterness, no malice, no shaking his fist at God. No bitterness came out of Jesus because there was no bitterness inside Jesus. And so here's the people of Israel and how quickly, just like me and just like you, they forget the work of God. They forget that God has led them uh, to this place. And like you and I, they begin to grumble. They begin to complain. They begin to murmur and they direct it at Moses. And what does Moses do? Does he throw in the towel? Does he complain? Does he start to gripe? God, these people, these people, you know, don't they know how good they have it with me as their leader or whatever, whatever it is? Now, what does Moses do? It says in verse 25, he, cried, he began to cry to the Lord. How much better to do that? You know, how much better to cry to the Lord than to quit? You know, how much better to cry to the Lord than to lash out in anger at someone? How much better to cry out to the Lord than to rebuke the people of God? Moses cried out to the Lord and verse 25 goes on and it says, the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the bitter water became sweet. The Lord showed him a log, a tree. Now interesting, the tree was there. It was there all along. It was there. Moses just didn't, he didn't recognize it. It never came to his mind. I'll throw it in the water and the bitterness will become sweet. It, it, God had to show it to him. And of course we we, we see the idea and we know the symbolism that the tree is symbolic for us, isn't it? As New Testament followers of Jesus Christ, the tree is a picture of the cross. It's the cross that transforms the bitter experiences and makes them sweet. It's, it's the cross that takes bitter people and makes them blessed people. It's, you know, the cross that, that, takes bitter circumstances and makes us see with faith in the midst of bitter circumstances. You know, the, the Bible says of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And, it, and then Peter said this in, in 1 Peter 2, 24, 
By his wounds, you are healed. See, throughout the ages, ages, servants of God, I would say, have been those who are happy to turn from discouragement, happy to turn towards, turn away from attitudes of ingratitude, um, and who turn to God and begin to cry out. You know, instead of complaining and murmuring and grumbling, the pattern of their life is in the face of bitterness, they turn to the Lord and they begin to pray. And he opens his heart to their cry and he pours out his love and uh, by his presence and the application of the cross of Jesus Christ, he takes the bitter experience and he brings sweetness in the midst of it. And so I would say this, to you and to myself this morning. And I think it's important that we catch this in this story. Listen to me. It, your inability to turn away from bitterness is telling you something about the condition of your heart. Your inability to turn away from bitterness is telling you something about the condition of your heart. Well, I thought it told me something about that circumstance. I thought it told me something about that town. I thought it told me something about those people and what they did to me. No. The bitterness tells you about the spiritual condition of your own heart. It doesn't say anything about the servant of God. It doesn't say anything about the faithfulness of God. Faithfulness of God. It doesn't say anything about the person who hurt you or the situation. Look, if there's a taste if, li- if, there's, if life has left a bitter taste in your mouth and in your stomach, you need to understand God is trying to reveal to you something about your heart. See, Mara is normal for a Christian. It's the normal Christian experience to be led by the Spirit of God to Mara. Yeah, but I'm disappointed, God. It's been said disappointments are God's appointments. (laughs) Disappointments are God's appointments. See, you will have frustration in life. You will have disappointment in life. You will have uh, sorrow in life. But I'm going to tell you this. Jesus died on a tree for you. Jesus died on a tree for you and you don't have to let the experiences of life make you bitter. Let Jesus heal your heart. Cry out to God from the place of bitterness. See, Moses, you know, I think Moses drank the same water as three million other people. And Moses, the one man, cried out to the Lord. And just like at the Red Sea, God healed the water for the multitude. One man, while the rest grumbled and were bitter, one man cried out to the Lord and God healed the multitude, so that, uh, healed the water so that the multitude could drink. Look at verse 20, 25 again. It says, um, and he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the, and the water into the water and the water became sweet. Then the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them 
saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord, your healer. Question. Jesus is baptized. The spirit of God descends upon him like a dove. The spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. Why was Jesus led into the wilderness? And the answer is this. Jesus was being tested. What was in his heart was being exposed. And we know that as you read the story of Jesus temptation in the wilderness, when Satan came to him, he passed with flying colors. He said, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he resisted temptation and he followed the perfect will of God when he was in the desert and, and without food and without water, not for three days, for 40 days. And God will test you, but here's the thing. Like I said, God already knows your heart. The problem is you don't know your heart. You don't know what's in your heart. You assume your heart is good. Your heart is right. But unless God he leads you to Mara, you will never uh, know what's really happening in that heart of yours. And if life has left a, a bitter taste in your mouth and you're complaining... And you're grumbling and you're murmuring. I would say to this, don't try and blame someone else because ultimately your complaint is against God. God led you there and you're complaining against his will and his plan and the leading of his spirit. And he's trying to show you your heart. So cry out to him. See, God promised the Israelites that, that if they would do so, if they would call out to him, if they would obey him, that, that like he healed the water, this is amazing, he would heal them physically. That there would be physical protection for their health and physical healing for their health. He said, I won't bring upon you the things that I brought upon uh, the Egyptians. In fact, it's at Mara where the Lord reveals himself as Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, your healer. It's one of the compound names of God. That's true. We know this. Medical knowledge tells us this, that, that there are physical illnesses and diseases that are directly related to the way human beings hold on to bitterness, the way human beings hold on to anger, the way human beings hold on uh, to unforgiveness. And God promises, obviously, spiritual healing when we cry out to him in the midst of that. But not only that, that, there's, that there are physical healings associated with bringing bitterness to the cross. God, I'm bitter. I'm going to apply the work of Jesus to it. And God heals physically. That's why Peter said, he was nailed to the tree and by his wounds you're healed. Verse 27. They came to Elam. They leave the bitter place where the water's made sweet. And they come to Elam where there was 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And they encamped there by the water. We're going to see this pattern of 
provision, wilderness, you know, provision, testing, trial, provision, more trouble. And it's just like my life. It's just like your life. And, and from being healed at the place of bitter waters, God leads them to this, this amazing oasis in the desert called Elam. And there there's, there's 12 springs of water and 70 palms. So I was reading about this this week. One commentator pointed out something interesting. He said, 12 and 70. Hmm. Jesus had 12 disciples and he sent out 70 to minister the message of the kingdom. And he connected the, the two stories. And he said this, the solution to your murmuring is to become a minister. Uh, the disciples and those who serve God, the, the 70 who preached the kingdom of God, they were ministering for the Lord. And, and there's this picture here of the 12 and the 70 and that there's refreshing when, when you're counted amongst those who serve God. Uh, when you minister, see the solution for murmuring is to be a minister. Serve someone. You don't go into the workplace, serve someone. Serve your family. Serve your spouse. Uh, serve the church, uh, serve the kingdom of God, begin to serve. And there you will find refreshing. You know, if, you, if there is complaining and there's murmuring in your life, you might want to look, am I serving anywhere? And what is my attitude towards serving? Offer your life and service. And there you will find refreshing. Look, the, the story of the victory of God is awesome. But the story of these two camps is this. Don't stay at Mara. Elam's within sight. There it is. It's just in the distance. There is Elam. If I'll take the cross and apply it to my bitterness, I can go to that place of refreshing. Amen.